Uh, my name is Jerry. If you're new or visiting, I'd love to get to meet you. So feel free to come find me after service or fill out a connection card and head out to the welcome area. But we would love to connect with you today. Um, if you didn't know it already, summer's here. It's hot. The kids are out of school, which means a lot of us are going to be traveling over the summer. I've talked to people today that have been to the Smoky Mountains. I talked to a family that's going to Maine and then into Canada. I talked to some folks that are heading into London. The point is we're all getting ready. To, most of us are getting ready to travel somewhere this summer, right? Which is exciting. So if you're going, go and have a blast. Our family is going to, uh, down to Gatlinburg for a family getaway in just a few weeks. And we're really excited to get there. Why am I saying this? Because it's travel season, which means that it opens up some gaps in volunteering here on a regular basis on a Sunday morning. And we could use your help as a church family filling in with some of those gaps, okay? So I wanna say this, for those of you that serve regularly, Thank you. We could not do what we do without you, but we could use some help filling in those gaps. So the biggest gap is always in our Gen Kids ministry from birth to fifth grade. We are busting at the seams in Gen Kids. And so if you want to help us serve there, that would be fantastic. This is not childcare. This is teaching kiddos about who Jesus is and why he came. To those of you Gen Kids volunteers, thank you. If you've got vacation planned, go and don't feel bad about it. Go and enjoy a Sunday without those kids. But thank you for what you do to build up that ministry. But it's not just Gen Kids. We've got opportunities at the door, at the cafe, and behind the scenes. So let us know how we can help you volunteer and serve and fill in some of those gaps this summer, okay? Today, we're kicking off a brand new series called Sticky Stories. And the reason we're, we're doing this is uh, we're gonna talk about Old Testament stories that tend to stick with us for a few reasons. They're sticky because we're familiar with them. You've heard them or heard about them, but they're also sticky because the lessons that we learn in them tend to stick with us throughout life. And each week we're gonna be handing out a sticker that you can put on a water bottle, on your computer, somewhere that will help you remember the point of the story today. So these are available in the lobby at the community table or at the welcome area. And here's our sticker for today, a foot stepping on a snake. What on earth is that about? Well, we're going to get there in just a moment, but we're going to begin by looking at maybe I would say the first sticky story in all of scripture. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter one. That's where we're going to, going to begin today. But while you're turning to Genesis chapter one, I have a new story that I want to share with you. And it's no secret that there's a lot of disturbing news stories that hit the air on a regular basis, right? And we're trying to figure out what do we do with all of this bad news? Well, this story, it just really freaked me out. And I want to show you the headline to see if your response is the same as my response. Here's the headline, okay? I don't know what's creepier, the snake or the, head, the actual headline, okay? So here's the story. Back in April, a South African pilot hops onto his plane with five other passengers. They take off, they get up into the air, and he reported feeling something cold brush up against his side. He looked down and saw a, the head of a large Cape Cobra look at him and then go under his seat. How you feel about that? I'm not a snake person. This is horrifying, right? You have a snake on a plane. So after a few minutes of stunned silence, he decides, since there's only five of us on board, I should probably tell everybody what's happening. And so he says, hey guys, we got to make an emergency landing. There's a Cobra under my seat. Now we're talking a little aircraft and everybody knows. Are you freaking out? Because I'm, fr I'm freaking out and I'm not even on the plane. So they make this emergency landing. Everybody gets off. They were visibly Shaken, no kidding, right? But if you're the pilot, how do you get out of your seat? I don't, I don't know. Do you move? Do you not move? So that's not the end of the story. They all get off the plane and for the next two days, they search this thing high and low, can't find the snake. 
So the pilot has to get on all by himself and fly at 90 miles home, but he took some precautions. He took his seat and he wrapped it in a blanket. He put on a heavy winter coat and next to him, he had a fire extinguisher, insect repellent and a golf club just in case, right? I mean, those all sound like things that you want if this is gonna happen. They landed again, stripped the plane, never found the snake. Now, I am not a snake person. That picture bothers me. I've thought about it all week. I try not to think about when I go to bed at night, right? I try to avoid places where I am going to run into snakes. But of all the places, being in a little plane, a couple hundred feet in the air sounds pretty terrifying, does it not? Now, today we're gonna look at a sticky story that's found at the beginning of Genesis. And it's not about a snake, but it is about a serpent. And it's not just any serpent. We're talking about a talking serpent, a serpent that actually fooled the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, into rebelling against God. And this is a sticky story because when they rebelled against God, sin and death entered into God's perfect creation. But it brings up a really, really, really good question. Where on earth did this talking serpent come from? And why was he in the Garden of Eden in the first place? That sounds like a fair question. I've heard a lot of people ask that question. And today we're gonna to find answers to those questions. But before we get to the answers, I wanna connect some dots for you as we, re, as we lead up to Genesis chapter three. So in Genesis chapter one, this is the first chapter of scripture. It is a poetic account of the creation story. It tells us how God created the heavens and the earth. Everything in existence is spoken for in Genesis chapter one. But at the end of this creation poem, we learn that God created his the pinnacle of his creation, his most prized possession, human beings, male and female in his image and in his likeness. This is what separates humanity from everything else that God had created. And his job description for them was, you are going to rule over everything I've just created. That's Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter two, we get a, another account of the creation story, but it's more personal. We learn about God's relationship with humanity. And at the beginning of Genesis 2, what we see is that God formed the first man, Adam, from the dust of the ground, and he breathed life into his nostrils, brought him to life. That's the beginning of Genesis 2. By the end of Genesis 2, in his divine wisdom, God did something amazing that we should all be thankful for. He created the first woman, Eve, to be a companion and a helper to the man because God knew we were going to need all the help we can get, right? Guys, you should be thankful for the woman in your life, right? This is a good thing. So, before, or I'm sorry, after God creates the man and before he creates the woman, what we find in the middle of Genesis 2 is God giving Adam some very specific instructions. So we're gonna read about it. Genesis 2 verse eight says this. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man that he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow up out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So there's all these trees in this garden where God is placing this man. Pay attention to the details in verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now you're probably familiar with some of these details, all these trees. And God says, hey, you can eat from all of them. But the detail we get caught up on is you must not eat from this one tree because if you do, you will die. Now question, is God threatening or is he warning? Because there's a big difference between the two. He doesn't say, if you eat of that tree, I'm gonna kill you. 
He's warning them of the danger of rebelling against his commands. So he's saying, here is a warning that I want you to pay attention to. But there's another danger hidden in the text here that I want to show you. If you go back to verse 15, it reads like this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. Now, that phrase, take care of, comes from the Hebrew word shamir. And shamir can be translated as to care for, but it can also be translated as to guard. Elsewhere, it's to guard. Now, here's a question. We're in the Garden of Eden, a garden that God has personally and perfectly created for mankind, for humanity to enjoy his presence. What on earth would Adam and Eve need to guard the garden from? It's an interesting question, right? Well, all of those details lead us into Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And the serpent says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Okay, so there he is. He's there. He's talking back to our original question. Where did he come from and why is he there? Well, it's probably helpful for us to know that this serpent, this talking serpent, didn't get his start as a serpent and he wasn't created on the earth. We're gonna jump into all of those details in just a moment, but you probably already know this. This talking serpent, we see him come up all throughout scripture and he's not given names as much as he's given titles. And some of the titles given to him are devil, which means slanderer, or Satan, which means adversary. And those two titles alone tell us a lot about his character. He is the enemy of God. He is hell-bent on ruining God's perfect creation. And he starts off as a serpent in Genesis. By the time you get to the Re Revelation, he's a dragon, okay? I don't know if that means he's grown in power, but the same character from beginning to end. But none of that answers the question, where did he come from? So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go into two Old Testament passages that give us Satan's backstory. But here's what I want you to know before we jump into his backstory. Satan or Lucifer, as he was known, was created by God, but he wasn't created to be evil. He was created as a powerful, beautiful angel. And again, his name wasn't Satan originally. His name was Lucifer. We're gonna get into all of these details, but here's something that I want you to think about. We know this from scripture. At some point in eternity past, when God created the heavens and the earth, at some point in creation, God created an entire race of angels powerful, beautiful, angelic, spiritual beings. And angels, from what we can tell in scripture, they are as holy and they are as perfect as any created being can be. Now they're powerful, but they're also limited in knowledge and power. They are not God. They were created by God, which means that God created this being to be beautiful and powerful, but he's also created angels for a few specific purposes. The primary purpose for angels is to worship and adore God. They are professional worshipers. But on top of that, they're also throughout scripture, we see angels protecting God's people. We see angels providing people with help when necessary. On two accounts in scripture, uh, when Jesus fasted early in his ministry, an angel, angels were sent to minister to him. And when Jesus plays, prays in the garden of Gethsemane, there's an angel that comes to comfort him before he's arrested. So they protect God's people, they provide help when necessary, and they also proclaim God's word to his people. And that's pretty fascinating when you stop to think about what angels are supposed to do. 
But apparently along the way, there was this angel named Lucifer. And at some point he decided to rebel. And scripture tells us he actually, in this rebellion, he led one third of all the angels to rebel against God. So this is a really, really, really powerful spiritual being. So where did he come from? Well, there's two passages in Ezekiel 28 and in Isaiah 14 that tell us his backstory. So the first one we're going to look at is in Ezekiel 28. Now, Ezekiel was a prophet that lived in the Old Testament, and he wrote down the account of Ezekiel around 600 BC, so 2,600 years ago. And if you read Ezekiel 28 today, it's going to read like God is speaking to a man known as the king of Tyre. It looks like he's, God is declaring divine judgment against this man. But here's what we're going to see in both of these passages. God is speaking divine judgment against the human, but he's also speaking divine judgment against the evil spiritual power behind the human that he's talking to. Let me show you what I mean. Ezekiel 28, 11, we read this. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone adorned you. Your settings and your mountings were made of gold on the day that you were created. They were prepared. So right away, we get a really important clue in this text. God is speaking to a being that was created in the garden of Eden. He was created to be perfect and beautiful in every way, adorned in beauty in so many different ways. Let's keep reading. Verse 14, you were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God and you walked among the fiery stones. So we've learned that this is a being that was in the garden of Eden, but now pay attention to this phrase, guardian cherub. That tells us that we're talking about an angelic being who was anointed by God himself to have exclusive access to the presence of God. Now, when you hear the word cherub, what do you think of? I asked our group this on Thursday and they said, isn't that like a fat little angel baby that sits on a cloud and plays a harp? Like literally that was our collective response. Like that seems to be what a cherub should be, right? Well, cherub or cherubim are found throughout scripture and actually they guard the presence of of God. So let me show you a familiar, uh, a familiar picture that you've probably seen before. If you've seen Indiana Jones, you've seen this. This gives us an idea of what cherubim are. This is the Ark of the Covenant, what we believe the Ark of the Covenant would look like. This was the box that would have housed the Ten Commandments and other Israel, um, Jewish artifacts as they were getting into, moving into the Promised Land. But do you see those winged creatures with their wings spread out like this, those golden creatures? Those are cherubim. They're guarding the presence of God around the Ark of the Covenant. If you go to the end of Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve rebel against God, God places two cherubim at the entrance to the garden to keep mankind out because they, they had sinned. They weren't able to come into God's presence. And so what we can learn right now in Ezekiel 28 is at one point in time, this angel Lucifer was a guardian cherub. He was guarding God's presence. Let's keep reading verse 15. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created until wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the Mount of God. I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Verse 17, your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth and I made a spectacle of you before kings. That's pretty interesting. We get an idea, not only was he created, 
But apparently all of his beauty, all of his power, all of his wisdom went to his head. And did you see where his pride landed him? He was thrown from heaven down to earth. Now keep those details in mind and let's jump over to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah is another Old Testament prophet. Isaiah was written 700 BC, so 2,700 years ago. Pay attention to these details. Isaiah 14, 12, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who were once laid low, who once laid low the nations. So again, we've got this being that lives in heaven and where is he thrown? Down to the earth. But I want you to pay attention to this phrase, morning star, son of the morning. In Latin, that's one word. It's the word Lucifer. So this is where we get the idea that his name was Lucifer when he was originally created in perfection. But if you keep reading, we, again, we learn that all of his pride, all of the Lucifer's power went to his head and he sinned in his heart. Verse 13, you said in your heart, now pay attention, there's five I will statements that he's gonna make. I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. That phrase stars of God is referring to angels. So I'm gonna be better than everyone else that's like me. I will sit enthroned on the top of, um, on the Mount of Assembly. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. But you're brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Now in each one of those I will statements, what's Lucifer doing? He's like climbing a ladder. I want to be better. I want to be the best. And none of them are good, but his most damning statement is when he says, I will make myself like the most high. Did you notice that most high is capitalized? What's that tell us? That's God. He says, I want to be like the being that created me. And the most high responded by saying, I'm sorry, there's pride in your heart. And he was cast down to the earth. Lucifer thought it was possible to become like God, but God is different. He's in his own category. Now this brings up a point, but I, I wanna play a game to, to prove this point, okay? We're gonna play the opposite game. And when I say a word, I want you to say the, the opposite word back to me. First service did this great. I, I, try, I believe in you guys, the first few rhymes, so this is gonna be easy for you, okay? When I say day, what's the opposite of day? Night, Night. you guys are good, okay. When I say black, you say white. white. When I say dark, you say Okay, now these don't rhyme, but I think you're doing good. When I say dog, you say? When I say wet, you say? When I say God, you say? Satan. Oh, that's what he would love for you to believe. He would love for you to believe that he's the opposite of God. But the reality is that God is different. He's the creator. Satan or Lucifer is the creation If If Lucifer or Satan has an equal, it's probably the archangel Michael. So don't buy into the lie that there's this tug of war going on between Satan and God because God is set apart all by himself. So why does all this matter? Well, let's go back and take what we've learned. And now let's go back to Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 and see what we can learn, okay? So in Genesis 2.15, God places the man in the garden and he says, you are to keep it. You are to protect it. Well, now we know what he's protecting the garden from. There is a powerful fallen angel roaming the earth, looking to corrupt God's perfect creation, looking to destroy these beings that God has created in his image and in his likeness. And it's tempting for us to say, well, that's, that's not fair. Adam and Eve are human. 
We're talking about a powerful spiritual being on the prowl looking to destroy. And all of that is true. But what makes man different? What makes man and woman different? The only being created in the image and in the likeness of God. God had given them the power and the authority of his word. God had lovingly warned them of the dangers of disobeying. He had told them about the, the need to protect the garden and God lovingly empowered them, not just to protect the garden, but to make decisions on their own. So let's see how it all plays out. Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Pay attention to the word any. Did God say they couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? It's not what God said. So this is what Satan does. He doubts God's word. He questions it. I, I heard there was a meeting and I wasn't invited. My Wi-Fi was down. I didn't get on the Zoom call. Did God really say that that was the case? Did, did God say that men are supposed to be men and women are supposed to be women? Or is that something that we can debate? Did God really outline safe and appropriate guidelines for sexual behavior? Or can you just do whatever you want? Did God really intend for all life to be valuable or just the life that you value? Did God really say? This is what he does, guys. He's gonna come at us and say, did God really say that? And if we're not careful and we don't stick to his word, we get in trouble. And this is what happens to Adam and Eve. Verse two, the woman says to the serpent, oh, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. Great job, Eve. So far, so good. And you must not touch it or you will surely die. Did God say they couldn't touch it? As far as we know, they could climb it. They could build a swing on it. He didn't say you couldn't touch it. He just said, don't eat the fruit. This is called legalism. When we put rules and regulations where God has not put rules and regulations, it is dangerous. And it doesn't draw us closer to God. We think it would, but it doesn't. It's dangerous. The people that didn't like Jesus the most were the people that loved all their rules. And so I'm going to guess you've probably come up against some Christians or been a part of a church where there's all these rules, the do's and the don'ts. Stick to God's word. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Well, look at what Satan does. He's got Eve reeling a little bit. Oh, you're not going to die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. Now, my friend Brandon pointed this out this week. What Satan said, what Lucifer said in Isaiah was, I'm going to make myself like the Most High. And here he says, Eve, you can be like him. Well, not really. It didn't work for me. It's not going to work for you. But I want you to be more like me than like God. And she takes the bait. She, Satan questions God's word. He doubts God's judgment. Come on, Eve, he's holding out on you. He knows things that you don't know. He doesn't want you to be like him. Eat, drink, be merry. You do you. Do what feels right. Do what feels good. What's the worst that could happen? Verse six. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And then she gave some to her poor, helpless, defenseless husband. It should say she gave some to her dumb husband who just sat there and said, oh, well, sure, that sounds like a good idea. Great. And they both ate it. Verse seven, then the eyes of both of them were open. Now pay attention to what happens. They realized they were naked. 
So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and the wife, his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to them, where are you? So they sin, they hide, they make clothes. God pursues them. All of those are important details. But first, let's pay attention to this. Adam and Eve willingly traded the wisdom of God for the logic of Satan. God had said, this is true, this is right, this is good, this is what will happen. But they traded the wisdom of God for the logic of Satan. And all of a sudden, God's perfect creation was ruined. In fact, it was cursed. If you keep reading to the end of Genesis 3, God shows up and he's, he's not cursing, but he curses. He curses the ground. He curses the man. He curses the woman. He curses the serpent. This is the penalty of disobeying God. Now the creation that they were supposed to oversee is cursed. And so if you've ever wondered, man, why is the world the way that it is? Why are things so upside down and broken? Why is death a reality? Why does life hurt? It's because of this sticky story and this sticking point. Sin had now entered the world. And it's easy for us to want to say, well, Adam and Eve, man, if it had been me, I would have not had screwed that up. Scripture tells us we do the same thing all the time. The apostle Paul says, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glorious standard. And now that they had sinned, they deserve death. And that's the penalty that we deserve. And when we read this, this is, I think, where we get the idea, oh man, Satan must be equal to God. But God shows up at the very moment that sin and death enter into his perfect creation. God doesn't show up like, what are you guys doing? He, for the very first time, presents his plan of salvation in the gospel. Genesis 3.14 says this, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You're going to eat dust all the days of your life. So the serpent is cursed. But pay attention to verse 15. The most important verse in Genesis 3, one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. I, God says, I'm going to put hostility, enmity, between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And this next word is so important. He, masculine, singular, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, why do those details matter? At the moment that sin and death entered God's perfect creation, he doesn't show up angry. He shows up and says, I have a plan. One day there will be a man that will be born of a woman and he will destroy you. This is why, oh, but pay attention to the, the whole phrase. God says, he, the Messiah, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That's why we're using this image this week for this sticker. You can take this and put it on a water bottle on our computer screen to remind you of this because that is the foot, not just of any man. According to Genesis 3.15, Jesus would come and crush the serpent once and for all. And the whole part about the serpent hurting him is the fact that he would enter into his creation and he would die as a man. But when he rose from the dead, he would conquer Satan and sin and death once and for all. And from Genesis 3 on, the question really throughout scripture is, well, who is he? When will he be here? What will he be like? And so all throughout the Old Testament, is it Noah? Oh, it wasn't Noah. Is it Moses? It's not Moses. It's gotta be David. It's not David. Solomon? No. We were waiting for the arrival of the one and only son of God. Nobody would have ever imagined that he would be the God of creation stepping into creation to save us. But there's a picture 
another picture in Genesis 3 of what Jesus would do for us. In Genesis 2, God said, if you sin, you will die. That's the penalty of sin. And remember what Adam and Eve did when they sinned? They hid, they made clothing out of leaves. What's the problem with clothing made out of leaves? Everybody always says it's itchy. Yes, it would be itchy. How long is that gonna last? Not very long. They're gonna disintegrate, they're gonna fail. This tells us that their own work could not save them no matter how much they wanted. Pay attention to what God does. Look at Genesis 3:21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Where do you get garments made out of skin? An animal was going to die. Blood was going to be shed. So God could show them, hey, you deserve to die. And now you will physically die. But something's going to die in your place. And I'm going to cover you with something that you can't create on your own. It's, I'm going to do the work for you. And if you've ever wondered, well, why is there all this animal sacrifice in the Old Testament? It's because God wants us to see sin leads to death. There's a sacrifice required for our sin. And eventually it points to Jesus's coming and death on the cross, his blood to cover us. We are covered by the work that he's done for us. We cannot earn salvation on our own. So we see the beauty of the gospel and mercy and God's grace to cover over what we deserve. Now, if you read to the end of Genesis 3, here's what happens. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, not because God's a jerk. He's not an angry landlord. He's perfect. And sin cannot dwell in his presence. So they were kicked out of the garden. There were cherubim stationed, but God also said, oh, he implied, have faith in the coming Messiah. So throughout the Old Testament, your faith in the Messiah saved you. But now that we know that Jesus has come, our faith is in the Messiah that has come, who has lived, who has died, and who will return again. Are you starting to understand why this sticky story matters to us so much? This is not a fairy tale. The world looks at this story and says, this is why I can't believe. Well, yeah, if we're just limited to physical earth right now, sure. But if there's a spiritual realm, and I believe that there is, God says there's a spiritual power that wants to take you down, but I'm the ultimate spiritual power. I have come to give you my spirit to live inside of you. Trust my word, trust my son, follow me. So as we close, I'm gonna give you a moment and I want you to have a conversation with the Holy Spirit. And I just want you to say, okay, will you help me, Holy Spirit? Like, what do you want me to take out of this? How do you want this to shape my life? And how can I use this to share this with somebody this week? So go ahead and pray. I'll wrap us up in just a moment, but take a moment and have a conversation with him. Spirit, I don't know about everybody else in this room. I know how you're convicting me. I trust your word, but I also use your word to find answers. Um, 
And, and in doing that, a lot of times I set aside our relationship. I come looking for answers, but I don't enjoy you. And this tells me, this, this story tells me we were always meant to enjoy you, Father. Time with you, being with you, created in your image and likeness, the gifts, the talents, the abilities. You are not a checkbox. You are a personal spiritual being, the personal spiritual being. You have come to know us and you want us to know you. And so I just confess, I've been moving too fast. I don't sit well with you. So I pray that you would take this story, all the stories and scriptures, and would you bring them, would you breathe them to life? Help us to not just run to your word for quick answers, but to enjoy being in your presence and to enjoy the fact that you have given us the answer to the problem of sin and the hope of salvation in this passage in Genesis 3. Would you help us to apply these things and to share these things? Maybe we need to take one of these stickers and put it somewhere where we're gonna be reminded that you have come to save us and to rescue us, but you've also come to save and rescue the people around us. Would you help us, Jesus, to speak of you as the coming and promised Messiah? Would you help us to be faithful? Would you help us to avoid the traps that Satan lays for us to distract us, to discredit us and to destroy us? And Jesus, would you help us to turn to you to be redeemed and renewed and restored through faith in you and in you alone? You entered into your creation to rescue us. Would you help us to live out that reality? And Father, I wanna pray for anyone that is listening today that has never surrendered to Jesus. Would you call their name and call them to you? Would you help them to see they cannot pay for them, their sins on their own, but you've sent your son to do that for all of us and help them to respond to you in faith. Jesus, we lift our hearts, we lift our minds, we lift our voices to you as we sing this song to you right now. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.